Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, David Roll, author of George Marshall, Defender of the Republic. David Roll, author of George Marshall, Defender of the Republic. Why'd you write about George Marshall? Well, I had two books that preceded it um, that led me directly to uh, George Marshall's dog's, or doorstep. Um, I wrote a book about Lewis Johnson that most people probably never heard of him. He was Secretary of Defense under uh, Harry Truman. And, uh, but he bookended Marshall's career. He helped him become uh, Chief of Staff in 1938. And uh, in 1950, uh, when uh, Johnson was Secretary of Defense, he got fired by Truman and Marshall replaced him. And Marshall knew a lot about Johnson, and there were letters that went back and forth. And the second book I wrote was um, <clears throat> about Harry Hopkins, who was Roosevelt's closest advisor, lived in the White House for three and a half years. And uh, Hopkins became the, sort of the intermediary between President Roosevelt and Marshall. Marshall did not want to get too close to uh, Roosevelt for a lot of reasons. Uh, so he used Harry Hopkins as a as a uh, medium to sort of understand um, Roosevelt's, what's going on in Roosevelt's head, what's he thinking about on this? And, and they became great friends. They were very, very different people. So I got intrigued by Marshall. Marshall was a much more, I think, uh, more difficult character to kind of penetrate. Um, but it was a challenge. And of course, anyone who gets into his career has to admire the man. So. I started on it <clears throat> and uh, managed to convince my agent that, uh, and, the, and then my agent expanded the project so it became a much longer book than I had originally intended. Well, you say in the start of the book, General George Marshall, who served under 10 presidents, occupies a singular place in the history of the 20th century, yet his significance is fading from public memory. Why is that? I think that's because. Um, Oh, a lot of the, even the generals are uh, receding from public memory, uh, given the fact that uh, the Second World War was more than 70 years, 70 years ago. But the ones, I think, who have lasted longer in memory are people like George Patton, Dwight Eisenhower, uh, MacArthur, because they were flamboyant, uh, they had outsized personalities. Um, of course, Eisenhower became president. Whereas Marshall was quiet, uh, humble, um, selfless, uh, often unassuming, was not a great speaker, um, but yet he was there for, for, for most of the major events, the historic events of the first half of the 20th century. He had a ubiquitous presence um, and probably had more influence than any of those uh, individuals. But to bring him back to life uh, uh, was a challenge and, um, 
and I had a lot of fun doing it. Well, for yeah. people who don't know, what was Marshall's job in relation to those other generals you mentioned, Patton, MacArthur, Eisenhower? During the Second World War. During the Second World War, and yeah. Of course, he had a, also an exemplary career in the First World War. But the Second World War, the day the war broke out in Europe, uh, September 1, 1939, Marshall was appointed upon that very day to be Chief of Staff of the United States Army. And he had that position throughout the war, so it was almost six years by the time he resigned, um, 1945. So during that period, he was, he organized, he trained, he supplied an army of more than eight million men and women. He uh, was the dominant, dominant voice on matters of allied strategy, grand strategy, with the British uh, and the Americans. He was the uh, the most influential of all of the uh, people that ran the war, with the exception of the president. Uh, so it, uh, I mean, and, and then he, he basically mentored Dwight Eisenhower, brought him in, and one of the first people he brought into his uh, staff was General Eisenhower as soon as the Pearl Harbor attack took place. As his chief of war plans, he mentored Eisenhower, he schooled him, he gave him a long leash in North Africa. Um, Eisenhower made a lot of mistakes, but he kept, uh, you know, he gave him his loyalty and, and, and Eisenhower reciprocated. Uh, they were a real team. And Eisenhower grew, uh, of course, took over the uh, command of Overlord and the, and the army in Europe. So uh, it was not only Eisenhower, but when uh, Marshall during the uh, interim years between World War I and World War II is at Fort Benning, and he uh, had a chance to evaluate and assess, train and uh, mentor many of the top dozens, dozens of the uh, Army officers who became uh, generals during the Second World War. So, a lot of influence. When, when the war started and Marshall became chief of staff, did he sort of understand that the United States was eventually going to get into the European War? No, not at the beginning. 1939, the whole, you know, we, we were separated by the oceans. Uh, Japan was way, way uh, out of the picture at that point. Um, he, it, at first, it was all about protecting the Western Hemisphere, you know, and he's been criticized for being overly uh, obsessed with that. Uh, but at the beginning, it was, let's just make sure we have a way to defend the Western Hemisphere. Did he do a military buildup from the beginning? He couldn't, uh, because uh, politics uh, were such that, with the isolationists ruling in uh, on the hill, uh, Eisenhower, uh, Roosevelt could not get out ahead of American public opinion, and so they did not want uh, to. They wanted to, to increase the Navy because that was part of protecting the Western Hemisphere. And to some extent, the Air Force. But uh, in terms of an army, the, until uh, after Pearl Harbor, the army was no larger than that of Bulgaria or uh, or uh, Portugal. We were like the 18th or 19th largest army in the country. Was there in a the, draft? In the world. Was there a draft? There was a draft. There was a draft in 1940. Finally, before we got in the war, and it's the first time we've ever had a, a draft, a peacetime draft, uh, and it was. You, you got to hand it to. Uh, actually, there was a it, there's a whole story about it in the book, 
the, the impetus for the draft came from some New York uh, public-spirited lawyers uh, who came to Washington, lobbied Marshall to get behind a draft. Marshall said, I can't go ahead of the president. And the president wouldn't move. And so finally they got uh, uh, Felix Frankfurter, uh, influential lawyer from Harvard, to uh, lobby the president. Uh, and, the, and the president, right before the 1940 elections, appointed two Republicans to uh, be as Secretary of War and as Secretary of Navy, Stimson and Knox. And they actually ended up convincing the president to get behind the draft. So a peacetime draft was started in the summer of 1940. Uh, but the original draft law, because of pressure from Congress, said that you can draft millions of these GIs, but they will only serve for 18 months. And they can't uh, go abroad. They had to compromise on the first draft law. Uh, unless there was a, a national emergency, and Congress had to declare a national emergency in order to get them uh, beyond 18, uh, 18 months. So when the U.S. got into the war, what was Marshall's job? Oh, extraordinary. His, his job was, you know, twofold. Number one, <clears throat> raise an army fast, as fast as possible, um, so that his his philosophy from the very beginning, his thinking from the very beginning was, we're going to have to build an army and we are going to have to take on the Germans. No one else can do it. So he had to build a huge army as fast as possible uh, because at that point in 1941, Hitler was all, almost all, already at the shores of the English Channel. Um, he could have overrun Britain. So number one, build an army. Number two, um, influence the deployment of troops across the globe uh, by the Allies um, as well as the United States. So he had to basically uh, lead grand strategy and also create, a, uh, create a, a huge army. The pressures were enormous. Uh, in, the, in the dark days right after Pearl Harbor, we were losing all over the world. Um, you know, uh, General MacArthur's troops were doomed uh, on the Bataan Peninsula, um, and <clears throat> we could do nothing in Europe. So the, the dark days of uh, early 1942 were the most uh, pressure-packed. He did all his, uh, he operated out of Washington and not most out of, the time, of yeah, that's Europe right. or, or that, the South the, the command structure that he basically uh, dictated at Christmas, Christmas 1941, there were a couple of major decisions that he led uh, the making of. First of all, to have the command structure with the British and the Americans centered in Washington. So the Joint Chiefs from the U.S., the Joint Chiefs from the uh, England uh, came to the United States, or they had their delegates in the United States, and all the major decisions were made in the United States for both the Pacific theaters and the uh, European theaters. Are there times he went over to Europe and, and to the South Pacific during the war? A lot, yeah. He, he, w yes, once it was, yeah, once we invaded France, for example, he was there six days after uh, on, on the, on the, in, in Normandy, along with Churchill and, and uh, the Navy people and so forth. He made an extraordinary trip. Uh, MacArthur was, uh, when the war started, MacArthur was already in the Pacific. Uh, he was in the Philippines. 
Um, and he had to be taken out of the Philippines. Marshall was responsible for that. He escaped Corregidor, uh, brought him to Australia because he was far and away the, the uh, commander who knew more about the uh, Pacific than anyone else. And of course, had been a hero in World War I. And one of the surprising things that I learned in doing this book is the deference that General Marshall gave to MacArthur. Even though MacArthur was technically his subordinate, MacArthur uh, was a giant of a figure, and Marshall respected his abilities, and he was extraordinarily deferential to MacArthur. What did MacArthur think of uh, Marshall? Well, uh, MacArthur had problems with virtually any other commander in the war. Um, but MacArthur, when MacArthur uh, got nine hours advance notice of the Pearl Harbor attack when they were coming to the Philippines, he had nine hours notice that the Japanese were going to attack the Philippine Islands. <clears throat> and Marshall gave him that notice. But he got his, his planes were, the B-17s were destroyed on the ground. Marshall could have relieved Marshall, he would have had ample um, reason to relieve MacArthur of command uh, in uh, December 1941. And I think probably the only time in MacArthur's life he, he took the initiative and he called Marshall from the Philippines to, and no one knows exactly what happened in that conversation, but MacArthur's job was on the line and I think he had to apologize. I think he blamed, blamed it on his air commander. But he was in a very difficult position right then. Um, but Marshall stuck with him. And the, one of the great things he did is in December 1943, after Marshall lost the command of Overlord, uh, uh, we'll talk about that in a minute, um, he flew 10,000, more than 10,000 miles the other way from uh, Cairo to, the Pacific, to a Pacific island, a small Pacific island where MacArthur was stationed at that time. I think you said in the, pl in the, in the book that he flew over 3,000 miles of Japanese territory. Yeah, over, dangerous flight, uh, and uh, they landed near New Guinea. And MacArthur was waging or leading a brilliant, brilliant campaign in New Guinea, uh, which was sort of the, the outpost uh, where we were fighting the Japanese at that time. And he was always complaining, you're not, you're not supplying me with enough army, I don't have any, I don't have any forces. He was, he was making a real jerk of himself. Um, but everybody kind of understood back in Washington. You, know, you just have to deal with MacArthur, you know. And he was getting short shipped uh, because there wasn't enough to go around. But Marshall went all the way out there uh, on his terms. You know, MacArthur wanted to meet in this little small island. You know, he wouldn't meet Mar uh, Marshall at the airport. But right. MacArthur wasn't there when well, that's Marshall another arrived. point. That's another time with Truman. But uh, uh, <clears throat> no, he was he was he just happened to be out on an island planning an invasion, and MacArthur bent over backwards to uh, to assure him we were behind him. We were giving him everything we could possibly have. You know, what do you need? You know, uh, what kind of what what kind of he had uh, his own navy at that point. Marshall made sure he had his own navy in the Southern Pacific. Uh, so Marshall did everything he could to uh, placate him because we needed him. He made him into a national hero. He, uh, Marshall was responsible for MacArthur getting a Congressional Medal of Honor uh, when he really didn't deserve it. 
want to ask you about this. Speaking of Pearl Harbor, you say in here, a damning 16-line magic intercept came across Marshall's desk in October 1941. The intercept message number 83 disclosed the Japanese intelligence officials in Tokyo, who had previously focused only on the U.S. fleet movements, were carefully mapping exact yeah. locations of each moored warship at Pearl Harbor in five specified sectors. Did Marshall have an inkling that uh, the Japanese were interested in Pearl Harbor? Well, he had. it, it came across his desk. Let's put it that way. That that intel, intel that's called the uh, the mapping uh, intel. There's uh, there's another intel that came across the desk too, but um, that uh, should have given him more. But he doesn't remember it. Uh, he doesn't. And and if he if he did read it, he, he there was so much other uh, intel coming in that he did not attach the significance uh, to it that he probably should have. There was somebody else on the staff who was more worried about that intel than, than, Mar than uh, Marshall and brought it to the attention, not to Marshall, of somebody else down below. Uh, but that, in that piece of intel just never, never, no one ever caught its significance. They were mapping the very harbor. because Everybody thought it was going to be in the Philippines. Uh, you know, they were convinced it was going to be the Philippines or Guam, so, somewhere way out in the Pacific. Not at, not at Pearl Harbor. And there was another uh, piece of uh, uh, document that came across Marshall's desk. He doesn't remember reading that uh, where General Short, who was in charge of the Army on Pearl Harbor at the time, General Short thought that he had been directed to uh, prevent sabotage of his airplanes, that, the, uh, the Air Force that was on the ground. And so instead of spreading the planes out which you would normally do if you were expecting an attack from the air. They were all bunched together, wing to wing, uh, as if they were going to be a, uh, attacked by uh, American Japanese on Pearl Harbor with satchel, satchel charges and bombing them. So all of those planes were caught on the ground. But Short, Short let the people back in Washington know that he had, uh, he was planning for sabotage. If someone had read that, uh, in, in that piece of information. It did cross Marshall's desk. Marshall doesn't remember ever reading it. Um, they should have said, wait a minute, he, shouldn't be, he should not be defending himself against sabotage. He needs to spread his planes out. Nobody ever caught that. And Marshall was faulted for that during one of the Pearl Harbor investigations. Um, Short, of course, got fired uh, early on. Now, since this is a program yeah. about Pennsylvania and Pennsylvanians, we should establish okay. why we're talking about George Marshall, <laughs> grew up in right. Uniontown, Pennsylvania. Right. Uh, yes, uh, born in 1880, uh, last day of 1880, uh, New Year's Day, New Year's Eve. Uh, born in Uniontown, his father was a gregarious businessman, had made a lot of money, then lost it. Uh, <clears throat> and then he, when he made the money, he invested in the Luray Caverns down in Virginia lost it there. Um, so they were up and down uh, as a family. He had a brother and a sister, older brother, uh, six years older, Stuart, uh, and a younger sister, Marie. Uh, his mother was a lovely person. She was uh, her, the daughter of an abolitionist uh, pharmacist, pharmacy guy, uh, guy from uh, uh, northern Kentucky. Um, so. They had, a, uh, they had a house on the National Road, uh, out kind of on the outskirts of Uniontown. I don't know whether that house is still there. 
Um, but so he grew up in this southwest Pennsylvania town. Coal was uh, coal and coke were the the uh, the, the products that uh, the businessmen exploited, and the town boomed because of that. Um, it was a uh, a great childhood for him. He was called Flicker, uh, and I think that was because he was a slight kid running. He ran around through the neighborhoods, uh, did not do well in school. His father worried about him. Uh, he overheard his uh, older brother. His older brother went to VMI, Virginia Military Institute, which was in Lexington, uh, Virginia. So his older brother was already out of uh, VMI when uh, Stuart was, or when um, Marshall was 16. And he overheard his brother telling his mother uh, that uh, Flicker uh, <clears throat> would disgrace the family if he went to the uh, VMI. And, and they should not send him because he was feckless and he had no ambition. And, and uh, Marshall always remembered that conversation and he said that hardened him. Uh, he said he was going to wipe Stewart's eye with that, um, which meant, you know, he was going to put it to him. And so, uh, <clears throat> and Marshall begged to go to VMI. He wanted to go to VMI. They had trouble with the money then. His, his mother had some real estate. She had to sell the real estate uh, uh, <clears throat> to pay for the tuition. And so uh, Marshall entered VMI. He was only 16. In fact, he was late arriving for his rat year um, due to the fact that he had a, t he had a touch of the typhoid, typhoid fever. Um, but his childhood uh, in, in Unitown was blissful. He did a lot of fishing, hunting. He learned about the George Washington's uh, battles in the area. His father loved that. Uh, his father made much of his uh, heritage. Uh, uh, they were distantly related to John Marshall, the famous first Supreme Court Justice, uh, first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Uh, but Marshall discounted that. Uh, he liked the fact that uh, they were related to Indians and things of that kind. Well, you also say in here, Marshall's father, George C. Marshall Sr., was a gregarious businessman right. who viewed the Army as a dead end that offered subsistence uh, salary, few opportunities for rapid advancement, and no social standing. Right, right. Did his parents live to see him reach some level of yeah. success? And he, you know, he had a decent relationship. There was a time when he cut off Stuart entirely from his, but he also didn't have much of a relationship with his father, frankly. Um, he did with his mother. He loved with his mother. His mother died before World War I. Uh, so, uh, you know, in my view, you know, it was kind of surprising. He did not have strong relationships, uh, <clears throat> certainly with his father and his brother. Um, I know he he had and he ended up having a long term time relationship, good relationship with Marie, his sister. Yeah, his sister. Yeah, I think he had more. He had deeper relationships with women, intimate relationships with women. We can get into that later, but uh, then he did. Uh, then he then he did with uh, close friends. He ended up one of his lifelong friends was his VMI uh, roommate, who we saw till the end of his life. Would you tell the story about the time he, he walked into the White House and just kind yeah. of barged in on the president? Yeah, well, one thing just before that, it reminded me of uh, when you're talking about his boyhood. His second year at uh, VMI when he was 18, um, or maybe it was third year, he came back to Uniontown, his hometown, 
at the end of the summer, August, very hot. Uh, and it was just the time when the, uh, the boys, the, the, the soldiers from the, uh, from the Spanish-American War, they called the boys of Company C. Company C were all from Uniontown, and he was there the day of the parade. And it was, uh, they, had, uh, <clears throat> they had decorated the town with bunting, and they painted the, the, the cobblestones uh, red, white, and blue, and they had uh, uh, bunting around, uh, all around the houses. And so he remembered there was a band, and the train came, and those soldiers marched through uh, Uniontown. And it, it made an indelible impression upon him. And that's when, as I say in the book, uh, he decided that he wanted to be in the United States Army. And so in his uh, senior year, uh, 1901, uh, I'm not sure whether it was the spring of his senior year, I think it was the spring of his senior year, he got some letters from his father. His father was not in the right uh, uh, political party. <clears throat> But he got some letters. He got one letter to uh, introduce him to the Secretary of War uh, and the Attorney General. Got on a train himself, went to Washington, um, <clears throat> saw the Attorney General, saw the Secretary of War, uh, and then he went to the White House. Uh, and he waited in line uh, at this, uh, that time he just went to the door. And there would be a line of uh, people wanting to see the president. Um, and he was eventually uh, taken upstairs, second floor of the White House, where uh, President McKinley uh, was uh, talking to a lot of more job seekers, well-wishers, businessmen, whatever, lobbyists. Um, <clears throat> and he had an audience with the president. Uh, the president <laughs> asked him why he was there, and he said he, he wanted a commission in the United States Army when he graduated from BMI. And I don't know exactly what the president said. He doesn't remember, but you know, the president said, well, thank you very much. And uh, you had to be appointed by uh, the congressional representatives in your state at that time, as we do now. Uh, and he got those appointments. He thinks it, became, it was because of his trip to see McKinley, and it may well have been. There's not a, a direct uh, relationship that I could find in the documents. But he got his appointment. He got his commission which was very hard to get because the, the army was being, uh, uh, you know, downsized at that point. Uh, so he got his army commission, uh, despite having average grades, VMI. What he got good grades in was deportment, uh, discipline, uh, and of course he was uh, head, of the, head of the cadet corps in his senior year. So you mentioned that he was in, uh, involved in World War I. Yes. Now, this would have been like 12 years after he got in the Army. What did he do in, yeah. the, in the meantime? Before World War I? Yeah. Yeah, well, his first assignment, when he got his commission in 1902, he got married, first of all, in 1902. <clears throat> he had a couple of days uh, for a honeymoon. They spent it at the Willard Hotel, the, 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 the old Willard. or the, No, it was called the New Willard at that time. Um, and then he was shipped off. Uh, to, uh, to the Pacific, to, to the Philippines, with no training. He joined one of the, one of the units there that was fighting the, uh, the insurrectos and trying to maintain some kind of uh, stabilization after the Spanish-American War. They had a lot of uh, revolutionaries in the Philippine jungles. So that's when he got his first te test of you know, learning about the Army. 
and then he, he established a reputation throughout the army at that time. The army was a small place uh, in 1912 or so. When he directed as a first lieutenant, he was, he was the head of the of these amazing maneuvers, uh, mock battles in the Philippines, uh, and he uh, ended up leading one of the uh, the invading force. They were pretending that there was going to be an invasion of the Philippines, and how should they defend it? And Marshall led the invaders, and established a reputation throughout the army as as a, as a wizard at uh, organizing, and uh, you know organizing a massive battle of troops. Um, and I think Henry, Henry Hap Arnold at the time was a young officer who witnessed uh, Marshall's performance during that time. Hap Arnold became the head of the Air Force in World War II. And he wrote his wife saying that he just met a guy who, would, who will become chief of staff of the United States Army one day. And he was prophetic. Uh, so Marshall made his chops uh, in the Philippines. Uh, and then, of course, every assignment he had leading up to the World War, World War I, he wanted to get out of the Philippines and get back to the United States because he, he knew there was going to be, a, he thought there was going to be a, a, a war with Germany. There's a lot we could talk about, and yeah. we only have a half, an hour, a half yeah. an hour left. And I want to, so we may jump around a little bit, but there's some things <laughs> I have to ask about. One is, during the First World War, General Pershing and his staff on short notice arrived uh, by train at the 1st Division training area where Marshall was. As Pershing turned to leave, Marshall reached out and grasped his arm. General Pershing, there's something to be said here, and I think you should right. say it because I've been here, I, th I should say it because I've been here longer. Marshall ticked off several reasons why the division's training progress had been inhibited, aiming much of the blame at Pershing's own headquarters staff. Yeah. That seems like a good way to end your career right. in the Army. I think he was a major at that point, um, and he was on the staff of, uh, of the 1st Division, the Big Red One, um, <clears throat> and that was the division that, the, the, the division that was, uh, had gotten to France first, and Marshall had helped train them. His, his general, the general of the 1st Division, was General Siebert, and Marshall was loyal to him. And the, the, what Pershing had done is Pershing showed up uh, at some maneuvers that they were doing, and, and uh, in the front of all of the officers, criticized General Siebert. He just ripped him up, uh, saying, this, you know, this, this is a ridiculous thing. You haven't done this. You haven't done that. And why haven't you done this? <clears throat> and Marshall was standing there. Now, Marshall had a temper. And the temper, I think, fueled what he did. But he decided to step forward uh, out of all the officers and, said, and grabbed, actually grabbed Pershing's arm and said, wait a minute. You know, I know what's happened here, and he and he, he had the facts right there, and his he, just a torrent of words came out. But basically, he said, <clears throat> "We you know, we ha we weren't able to do this because we didn't get this from the headquarters, and you told us to do this, but but now you're criticizing for doing this, you know." And, and so he came through a whole uh, <clears throat> bunch of things, and and Pershing, he wanted to get away. He said, "What's it?" And uh, he. He started to depart, and uh, he said, well, I'll look into it. And Marshall said, there's no need to look into it. These are the facts. Uh, and uh, so Pershing then did go away. But like other occasions in his uh, career, Pershing, Pershing uh, sensed that here was someone with integrity. 
here was someone who knew what he was talking about. This was not, this was not somebody to be trifled by, and this is somebody that he respected. So speaking truth to power uh, became one of uh, Marshall's trademarks. Yeah, I have a scene in your book where he confronts Roosevelt at a meeting on, on right. something. Thing. That he Similar like thing. That Roosevelt yeah. Said. yeah. Similar thing. So he ended up working for and, Pershing. And Pershing, yeah, he put him on his staff. He said, I want this guy. Uh, and uh, so he, but then as a result of that, um, he took him away from the 1st Division. And Marshall established himself in the 1st Division, too. And he organized the first attack uh, that, the US, that the Army, that the American Army had during the war. But then when Pershing got him in his staff, uh, he, he was planning huge maneuvers. And he famously... Uh, planned and executed a brilliant nighttime movement of 600,000 American troops uh, for the Meuse-Argonne campaign and putting them in place by the assigned hour. He had two weeks to move 600,000 troops and equipment, putting them in place to win, to win the decisive battle that ended the First World War. What was his reaction to combat? Well, he was in combat in a sense. He never led troops. He never, he never, you know, went over the top with a sword or a saber, uh, leading troops uh, into no man's land. But in planning the first uh, major engagement of the U.S. Army, uh, the first division's uh, battle, Cantigny, uh, in May of 19, uh, May of 1918. Um, yes, he. He was in combat in the sense that every night for weeks before the battle, he went into no man's land himself, around 2 in the morning, 2 until dawn, planning and tracking, going into every, every uh, aspect of the terrain, finding out where their artillery were. And he was under artillery attack. So it wasn't like, he, you know, that's a form of combat. He wasn't going, he wasn't having hand-to-hand -hand combat with the Germans. But for weeks, he... Uh, he was out there, and so he led that. Uh, he didn't lead the troops in that battle. The battle was successful. It's a small engagement uh, comparatively, a small number of casualties. Uh, but <clears throat> so, and then in in uh, the same thing in Meuse Argonne, he was not under attack. Um, he escaped. He, he he was almost killed by a uh, you know a, a bomb one at one point that somebody dropped out of a plane right near him. He was almost killed uh, so, a couple of times. Yeah, uh, and yeah, well, he, he almost it would crash. He almost uh, crashed when they were uh, going to to see MacArthur. And also, he uh, and a, a couple of other top generals were on a boat going to was it a, a conference in Europe, and they were torpedoed by oh, their yeah, own yeah. their own guys. famous famous incident. Um, going to the Tehran conference, they left uh, they left the United States aboard a brand new battleship called the Iowa. It was a huge battleship, uh, and Roosevelt and all the Joint Chiefs were aboard this battleship. They were on their way to uh, North Africa, where they were going to fly to Tehran. Um, and two days out uh, in the Atlantic, uh, they were suddenly under attack. And uh, from the bridge, the, the sailor called out, this is not an attack. This is no drill. This is no drill. And a torpedo wake uh, <clears throat> came steaming toward uh, the the battleship Iowa, and they may, they just managed to zigzag away from it, uh, and it was by their own, uh, by one of the own, their own U.S. destroyers, uh, and Harry Hopkins uh, had so much fun with that. Uh, he made fun of it for the rest of the uh, for the rest of the war. 
the Navy had almost uh, destroyed the American high command. Um, yeah. What would George Marshall have been like to be around? Well, it depends. Um, he could be coolly impersonal, stoic, uh, very little words, clipped words. Um, when you got before him and you were, you were there to, make a, to, to report on a decision you were about to make or a recommendation, it was all business. There was no, there was no, you know, no, no waste of time. He didn't have time. But when he relaxed um, in the presence of family and friends, um, he could be a, actually could be a raconteur to some extent. His jokes were not always funny. Um, he could be, you know, uh, he could be prissy. Uh, nobody told dirty jokes around him. Uh, he told his form of funny stories. Um, but he would. He loved the outdoors. He, would, he had pals that he would fish and hunt with. Hap Arnold was one of them. He would take any opportunity he could to hunt and fish, ride. He was a great horseman. Um, and, you know, he had, he had, he made deep, long, intimate relationships with this precocious young girl named Rose Page, who he befriended when she was only eight. And she was one of the last people to see him uh, die when, when he was dying, a relationship that lasted uh, 50 years um, that was sort of amazing. Um, a headstrong stepson, when he married the second time, he acquired a complete family. And there was one, uh, the, the youngest boy in that family, he just loved. He formed a lifelong bond. This is Alan? Alan, yeah, Alan Brown. Um, he mentored him. Alan, Alan went played football. He was a wrestler. Uh, Marshall was his father, uh, and his stepfather. He loved this kid. He did something amazing. He, uh, 1943, Alan had just graduated from the Fort Knox tank school, itching to get into combat. Um, and he wrote a letter to, to Marshall. Uh, he wanted to, he wanted, his dream was to lead a tank platoon. Marshall issued a highly unusual secret order, and the order directed Allen through channels to join the, uh, it was the first army division that was refitting in North Africa for possible action in Italy. Marshall got Allen into Italy, Mar and <clears throat> Allen fought in Cassino, uh, in his tank group, um, and his dream was, as I said, to lead a tank platoon. And his dream came true. He led the tank platoon uh, after the Anzio breakout, 1944, uh, May of 1944, right before D-Day. Allen was in Italy, tough fighting. On the road to Rome, Allen was killed. Um, and it was probably the most devastating personal thing that happened to Marshall and his wife, his wife Catherine at the time. Catherine's a whole different story, which I would love to tell at some point in this Discussion. Did, did Marshall ever write down personal thoughts, like how he felt about losing his stepson? Never did. He never did. And he never wrote about what he must have felt when the command decision, the overlord command decision, went to Eisenhower. Of course, he may not have actually wanted it. We'll get to that. But uh, he didn't write about that. He didn't write about uh, Catherine wrote about her thoughts when, when Alan was wife? killed. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, his wife. 
um, she, uh, she felt a blessed numbness. She said, my guess is that Marshall was profoundly, my guess, I'm sure he was profoundly grieved by Ellen, given his love for him. And we knew that. Um, it was clear that he loved Ellen um, beyond all the other, uh, all the other children. Um, that he had three children that uh, he, he, he became, that became his stepchildren when he married uh, Catherine. So, uh, and I bet he felt a, a tinge of regret at having gotten Alan into Italy in the first place. Um, he was the one who sent him there. Uh, so. But you said he, uh, Marshall was not sure he wanted to be in charge of D-Day? I think the record is, the, the record is not clear on that. Um, there's no documentation of exactly how Marshall felt. And a lot of writers have said that Marshall coveted the command. I mean, he had been offered the command uh, <clears throat> earlier, and he certainly didn't turn it down. Uh, but when it came to the, when, when, when Roosevelt had to make the decision, December 5th, 1943, they were in Cairo. Roosevelt called Marshall to his quarters, and he beat around the bush, as he always does. The command decision of Overlord, Operation Overlord was going to take place early June of 44. That was the invasion of France. Here we were at Cairo in December 1943. Stalin had demanded at the, at the Tehran conference, you, got to command, you, have to, you have to decide who's going to be the commander. Overlord's not going to take place unless you appoint a commander. And, and Roosevelt was dithering. He didn't know what, he wasn't sure what he's going to do. And he, he whispered to uh, Lovett or Bolin next to him, he said, that old Bolshevik's trying to force my hand. He's, that's what he whispered to. But in any event, December 5th, 1943, he says to Marshall, do you want to command Overlord? <clears throat> what, what do you want to do? <clears throat> Marshall had so much respect, uh, Eisenhower had so much respect, I'm sorry, Roosevelt had so much respect uh, for, uh, for uh, Marshall that uh, he would have appointed it. If, if Marshall said, I want to command Overlord, it's almost certain that uh, Roosevelt would have given it to him. But Marshall demurred. He, he didn't ask for it. So Roosevelt felt, well, maybe he doesn't want it. In fact, later he said, I didn't think he did want it. <clears throat> But a lot of Marshall's friends said he did want it. Marshall never said one way or the other. Instead, he said, well, Mr. President, you should feel perfectly free to decide this question according to the best interests of the country and not to consider my feelings. You have a quote in here that has uh, gotten some play where Roosevelt said, um, "He well, well, I didn't feel I could sleep at ease if you were out of Washington. Right, right. And that meant... He wanted him to stay there and control uh, the whole command structure, which he had been doing. And there's, it's possible that Marshall felt for the, the in turn, and Marshall was selfless in many respects, that, would be, that it would be better for him to stay in Washington, where he could continue to influence the course of this global war. It wasn't just Overlord. They were talking about the Mediterranean, the Pacific, uh, Burma, everywhere. Uh, so he may have said, 
to himself, you know, I really want a command overlord, but it's better for the country for me to stay in Washington. I, I'm not willing to make that judgment as to which way he act, what, as to which, what he really felt in the absence of a document. Marshall was was uh, chief of staff while the uh, while Roosevelt died and Truman took over. The, what what kind of change was a, a result of that? How did he get along with Harry Truman? Well, one thing he said, uh, they met they met with Truman almost the day that uh, I think it was the, uh, the either either the evening or the day after uh, Roosevelt died. Uh, Marshall was in the in the White House right away because Mrs. Roosevelt wanted to organize the funeral. But when they left that meeting with Truman, um, Marshall said to, uh, I think it was uh, Bob Lovett or Chip Bull, and he said, we won't know what he's like, meaning Truman, until he, the pressure uh, is on. <clears throat> but it didn't take long for Marshall and Truman to uh, have a good relationship. Um, Truman was much more forthright much more easier to read, you know, what, what Truman said, uh, you know, he did. Uh, he was, a, you know, Mr. Common Sense, Mr. Plain Speaking, as they always said. And, uh, you know, Marshall felt a lot more comfortable around Truman. Uh, and Truman revered Marshall. I mean, Marshall was on a pedestal as far as Truman was concerned. Uh, so they got off to a, a, a much quicker uh, a good relationship than, than, Roosevelt, than uh, Marshall ever did with Roosevelt. What kind of role did Marshall have in the decision to drop the A-bomb? Well, he obviously he had views on it, but they, what Truman did is he appointed a, a top-level civilian committee to make a recommendation on dropping it. And the other options were, you know, block, blockade, uh, invasion, you know, huge amounts of casualties would be incurred if there were invasion. Blockade would take long. Maybe the Soviets, if they came in, would cause the Japanese to, to uh, surrender. All these things were up in the air. Um, but the, he appointed a committee once they, just, they had the bomb. They knew it would work, and they had two of them. <clears throat> uh, they, they appointed a high-level committee that Marshall wasn't on. Uh, but he told Stimson, Henry Stimson, the Secretary of War, was on the committee. So just before they, had, they began having their meetings, Marshall said, you know, we have to worry about civilian casualties. Uh, uh, you know, can't just drop it on millions of uh, Japanese uh, citizens. Uh, so he, he, he was one of the few to recommend some sort of a warning or keep it away from uh, civilians. Stimson, uh, Stimson was on the committee. The, the committee uh, prevailed on the, uh, dropping the bomb. That was Jimmy Burns, who was one of the most influential people on that committee. And uh, Truman had never had a second thought. He said, we're going to drop this bomb, these bombs, one bomb at least. And Truman kind of convinced himself that, well, we're going to bomb it on a city which, which is, has a military installation in it. And he figured that was good enough, uh, even though these installations were surrounded uh, by workers. I mean, they were living right next to these factories. So um, not a lot of thought was given to that, given the, given the casualties that 
there was racism involved. There was a lot of other issues that, that came into play on that. Um, but once the decision was made, Marshall backed it. He didn't object. Was he well known at the time? I mean, was he in the news and quoted in the newspapers? Always. Uh, yeah, yeah. His figure, I think his picture was on the front of Time magazine uh, two or three times. Uh, yes, he was. Uh, uh, he had. Uh, he played the press. He know how he dealt with the press. He dealt with them on a confidential basis, where it was off the record. He met with a group of uh, top uh, top reporters in Washington regularly, briefed them on what was going on. He felt that was important, and then he, he most of it was off the record. Um, but then he would go on the record um, and uh, give speeches. Uh, when they were uh, doing the Marshall Plan, PR was a big deal uh, to get the American people to come around on, on supporting the Marshall Plan. American public opinion played a big role in that. We could probably spend half of this interview just talking about the Marshall Plan, and, we, and oh. he had an, a, an extensive post-World War II oh, career, but yeah. would you talk about the Marshall Plan? Just sure. bring people up to speed for people who might not Try remember. to do it briefly, but... Uh, when Marshall was Secretary of State in 47 to 48, and in 47, uh, <clears throat> first personnel move he made uh, within a two, three or four weeks after he was Secretary of State, he said, I want George Cannon here uh, <clears throat> at the Secretary of State's office to be head of policy. We need a policy planning office. We need to think about, uh, you know, where we're going to be. <clears throat> what we're doing. Uh, we can't just, you know, react from one thing to another. He brought George Cannon. George Cannon had been in Moscow. George Cannon knew Russia better than anybody uh, in the country. Uh, probably in, uh, almost more than the Russians themselves know. He'd lived in Russia for years. Brilliant, brilliant guy. Brilliant personnel move. And Cannon had written a telegram in 1946 called the Long Telegram. And it was, it's pro, if you read it today, it's prophetic. It, it explains more about Russia and its culture and its heart and its soul than anything I've ever seen. Uh, and it explains what Russia's doing today. Uh, so anyway, the, everybody in Washington knew about this long telegram. So he brought Ken in. Then he goes off to Moscow for his first uh, taste of the Russians. Uh, for a, it's a foreign minister's meeting. And they're getting nowhere about what we're going to do with post-war Europe. He finally gets a meeting with Stalin. Stalin says, don't worry. Uh, let's just let it ride for a while. We'll see what happens. Uh, and he came away from the meeting with Stalin. As, Stalin doesn't care what happens to, Western, to, to Europe. He wants his block of Eastern European countries. He wants communists to spread across the entire continent. Uh, and he wants them to you know, be in poverty because communists will, will, will take over the whole uh, Western Europe. Marshall arrives back in Washington and says, we've got to get to work. We have to have a plan. This guy is, is <clears throat> wants to take over all of Europe. And he doesn't want to go to war. What he wants to do, he wants to do it with economics. Uh, so they get, they get Cannon, uh, they get Chip Boland, they get a guy named Will Clayton, who is a, uh, unknown, but he's the, the most successful cotton trader in the world, made a fortune. He's working for the government a dollar a year in the State Department. 
he knew trade. So he gets Clayton, and he gets Atchison, he gets Kennan, uh, <clears throat> and they're, they're working on a plan, uh, later became known as the Marshall Plan, a way to restore the economics uh, the tra and the trading capability of Western Europe. So Marshall, meanwhile, doesn't tell anybody. He, write, he gets Boland and uh, Kennan uh, and Atchison, to some extent, help him write a little speech. And he calls up the president of Harvard, Conant, says, I'd like, to take, I'd like to get that honorary degree you've always wanted me to get uh, at the commencement, June of 1947. I'm going to give a little speech, not a big deal. So he, did, he gave a speech, not the commencement speech, but a speech to the alumni later in the afternoon. And it was the, Marsh, it was the, it was the speech that introduced the Marshall Plan to the world. Senator Vandenberg, a Republican isolationist who had turned internationalist, called it, and he was there then, the Republicans were in charge of Congress. Vandenberg, the head of the Foreign Relations Committee, said it was a shot heard around the world. <clears throat> the British listened to it and the French listened to it, and they finally had some hope. America may do something. So they put together the plan, and the plan was the elements of the plan were, and Marshall outlined these elements in the speech, it, it's up to the, to the European countries to come up with a plan. We're not going to tell them how to do it. We're going to tell them we're going to support it and we're going to give them some money. <clears throat> but they have to come up, they have to integrate, get together, stop squabbling, and come up with an integrated plan of how, we're going to, how they feel the economies should be restored. It's up to them. And that was a key component. And then what about the Russians? Should we offer it to the Russians and to the Eastern Europeans, Poland and all those? <clears throat> and Kennan said, yes, offer it to them. They won't take it. <clears throat> uh, if they did take it, they would have undermined it. They, yeah, but so they offered it. They offered it to anybody. Um, and so that got it off the ground. And the Russians did not take it. Stalin wouldn't, wouldn't have it. Uh, because he said, I don't want them messing around with my economy. Uh, <clears throat> I want to continue my whatever I'm doing. So uh, for the next, uh, it took him another, uh, uh, almost a full year to get it through Congress. And Marshall was the spearhead. He was the voice. He was the face, uh, as was Senator Vandenberg. And they worked together. They, they lived with each other. Uh, and Vandenberg needed to be courted. He needed to put his stamp on the plan. He did that. But the plan finally got through and finally appropriated in June, a year later. But it was already, it was the hope, it was the psychological lift that just brought Germany and uh, France, Britain, Netherlands, Italy. Uh, Congress was aboard. One interesting thing is uh, Nixon was a freshman, freshman congressman at the time. Nixon. <laughs> Nixon was one of the delegation. They sent him to Italy to assess the economy in Italy and you know, whether the Marshall Plan might work and all that. And these congressmen came back, a lot of them Republicans, <clears throat> and uh, they were all on board. They want to help this country. They want to do this. And, uh, Nixon became a great comp uh, proponent. So he got, they, they got the Republicans, the Democrats, they came together. It was nonpartisanship like we'll never see again, I'm afraid. 
I wish we had time to keep talking because there's a lot more to talk about, about uh, J Senator Joe McCarthy got, oh, uh, yeah. got to George Marshall in his crosshairs for a while, and the founding of the State of Israel, yeah. founding of NATO, the Cold War, and all that. But if you want to know all about that, you'll have to read the book, George Marshall, Defender of the Republic, and we've been speaking with author David Roll. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Enjoyed it. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.